You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers with Saya, Anissa, and Borma. We're back with a final yak about Squid Game. I'm Anissa, and while Saya jumped ship, our friend K Fangirl kindly joined me to finish up this dystopic voyage into the human psyche. We take a spoilery dive into episodes 7 through 9, which start off with our main characters stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea. We discuss those much maligned English-speaking actors, whether the ending worked for us, and our thoughts on a second season. Dip your toe in for a lovely conversation, and please send your complaints about the excessive nautical puns to dramasoverflowers at gmail.com. As always, thanks to our crew of loyal listeners and patrons for keeping this ship sailing. You can find our Patreon page with bonus minisodes on K-dramas and other things we feel strongly about at patreon.com slash dramasoverflowers. Ahoy! I spy the episode! So I am here with, um, well, Saya abandoned me, (laughs) but I'm here with our dear friend, Kay Fangirl, from The Fangirl Verdict, which is one of our favorite blogs. And she's come to join me to talk about Squid Game episodes seven through nine, the conclusion. Hi, everyone. Hey, Kay Fangirl. Thanks so much for joining me. I know I like pulled you in in the last at the last minute a little bit, and it's been a while since you watched. So I appreciate you doing like some homework <laughs> to get to sort of refresh your memory. But um, where we left this story at the end of episode six mm-hmm. in our last um, Squid Game yak was right after the Marbles game, mm. which like kind of left us shell-shocked. You, know, you can go back and listen to us cry on that episode. <laughs> but it takes a very different turn in episode seven, right? Like, you know, we've left, we've, we're starting from this point where like people have basically had to eliminate the person that they were closest to with their own hands. Yes. So everybody's feeling pretty traumatized. Um, and then we also have the introduction of these VIPs that we've only heard about before. And at the same time, we had Jun, who plays Detective Huang, is like puttering around, you know, hiding, investigating, trying to find out stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we're not, I don't think we need to go like it's into super detail about like all the plot uh, machinations. But what did you think of like in general, the last three episodes? Do you feel like they held up well to the rest of the show? Um, I personally think they were like a little different in tone somewhat. Do you think it, it worked well, the ending? I think it did in the sense that, okay, so I binged this show in 48 hours, basically. Wow, <laughs> and, um, that's intense. So, <laughs> yeah, it was intense, but um, it actually, there was a lot of mom- momentum. I felt as in, I found it easy to go from episode to episode. And what I found interesting was that even though the tone shifted, as you mentioned, I felt that it served the story. And um, I may be jumping ahead a little bit here, but in episode nine, I really felt the drop in tension because um, we've been like going and going and going since Mm. uh, episode one, like when the game started. But then once we finished the games in the early part of episode nine, suddenly all the adrenaline just drops off and you're left with this vacuum almost you know and as a viewer of course the that forward momentum to like just keep going 
is suddenly lost as well. So in terms of the watch experience, that was a little bit jarring, but I felt that the that jarring effect was on purpose. You know, I felt like the the showmakers actually wanted us to feel that vacuum along with Kihun. It's all fun and games. Well, not exactly for them, but <laughs> you know, um, metaphorically speaking, it's enjoyable and like this, it's exciting to watch. And then suddenly mm. you realize that there are a lot of consequences that come with these games. And even for Gihun, who wins the game and therefore should be living a good life, you see that the consequences are actually so great that he finds himself mm. unable to even enjoy his winnings. So I felt that that drop was very deliberate and very important, actually, because um, while this show has been criticized, I think, by some people for being too violent, too bloody, too dark, too gritty, too everything, uh, (laughs) I think this last part in episode nine tells us a lot about what the director, well, writer-director actually wants to communicate Mm. that it's not actually glorifying the violence, but it's actually showing us the price of the violence. That's a really good point. Yeah, because I think it was pretty common um, opinion, like how the epilogue kind of, it almost felt Mm anticlimactic. A lot of people were saying like, what is the point? Uh, And it's, it's a good majority of the final episode. You know, you have episode seven is about an hour. And then when I started episode eight, I was like, wait, it's only 30 minutes. What's going on? Um, But I mean, I kind of understand why it was 30 minutes after I watched it. And then you have this quite long finale, which most of it is taking place in that one year later. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of also felt a bit disappointed by that just because it was a little bit of like tonal whiplash, but you make a really good point about how you're feeling the wreckage now mm-hmm. of this. It's like they were on this really terrible roller coaster. And then it's not until you get off that you're like, oh, I'm going to go throw up now. That was that was a lot, you know, even though it's really heartbreaking the way that a lot of the characters end up. I can't really say that it doesn't make sense for them to end up that way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really good writing. Like you said in your review, which I'm going to link in the show notes. Oh, thank you. Definitely go read it. It's a great review. Um, But you said that like the two strong points of the show are the character development and kind of like the social commentary, the themes that it brings up. And I really agree, you know, like all the characters, whether we loved them or hated them or felt ambivalent about them, they were so well drawn. You could see their motivations. You could see where they were coming from, why they were acting the way they were, whether that was because of how they had grown up or the circumstances that life had put them in or like sort of what they had to look forward to or not look forward to if they left the game without winning. And, you know, you said in there that like a lot of people say this is not like a, like a K-drama. And I do think that it's not like a K-drama in some ways or like what we normally typically think of as K-drama as fans. But on that aspect of the the character, like how well fleshed out Mm -hmm. the characters are, it's very much like a K-drama. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I yeah. was very pleasantly surprised by how Korean insensibility the watch experience was, given the fact that um, it's like Netflix produced and it's uh, 
gaining all this international recognition and um, all these non uh, non K drama fans are tapping into it and enjoying it. And also, given the fact that so many people are criticizing it for being not Korean enough, so when I watched it, I was like, wait. This is very Korean at heart, you know, like underneath, yeah, underneath d- the blood and gore, which is not typical of K drama, but which has been in K movies for a long time. I was gonna say I wouldn't say it's not Korean. I would just say like it's more often seen in Korean film. Exactly. Which this is very, and he's a film director, right? Like he originally envisioned this. He even wrote a script mm-hmm. back in two thousand nine. It was a it was a movie script for a two hour movie. Oh, so it was originally conceptualized as a movie. He wrote this during a really difficult period in his life where he was like kind of in a similar position as Kyun. Like he was 38, 39, living in his mom's house. His mom was retired. Neither of them were making money. And like this, and he started like hanging out at like manga cafes and like, you know, reading death game scenarios like Liar Game and, you know, Battle Royale and stuff. And, but then he also has the background of being like, he went to Seoul National University, right? And then instead of becoming like an elite, he, that I want to make movies. So like, so he has kind of all like different aspects of like, I think different characters, but because he's been in that kind of desperate situation himself. Oh, that's really interesting. I think that's what gives it that like raw kind of feeling um, and and texture. When you shared that, it suddenly occurred to me that like Sangwoo's part of him, but Ki-hoon's also part of him. And so like, ultimately we have these two characters who are pit against each other, who are both actually inspired by his own journey. Wow. It's true that the Netflix dramas are sort of more pitched towards a global audience, Mm -hmm. but Korean dramas are made for export anyway. You know, they always have been. That's That's kind of been a part of it from the beginning. They weren't always, you know, designed to go to Western countries, but they've always been something like that. You were deliberately made for consumption, like across Asia and like as a, as an export of the country. Yes. And I don't think that this, like, Squid Game doesn't give me the vibe that I get from some other Netflix dramas where, like, sometimes they will pick up certain sort of, like, Hollywood-type tropes okay. in a kind of a lazy way. I don't think that Squid Game does that at all. Mm. It's just nothing that you would see on broadcast television in Korea. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's stuff that's, uh, well, not exactly death game stuff, but, like, violence, blood, murder... And all these hmm. disturbing themes and everything, they've been done in Korean film for a long time. So it's not actually overly westernized, as I think many Korean drama fans feel. Yeah, and it's giving space to some some creatives to make things like DP, for example, which I doubt would ever get put on, you know, terrestrial TV because it's so critical of the mandatory military enlistment system. Like that would never go on Korean TV. So like, and that's absolutely a Korean story. It's just not a Korean story that would get mainstream approval. Let's put it that way from like the powers that be in the media establishment. So completely agree. Actually, I just finished watching DP and I find it such an important work. So if Squid Game and the likes of Squid Game, you know, can actually pave the way for works like DP, I actually feel that there's a lot of value in that because it's such an important message. It's mm. it's filling such an important space that's creating debate that might actually drive change that could save lives. I think that's worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. So... 
You mentioned that you saw a theory or like that you saw some theories online about how like people's deaths kind of reflected the way that they were introduced. Is that right? Like yeah. that, for example, earlier on, Sangu is about to commit suicide mm-hmm. when he's like gets the card and then he ends up dying by suicide. And then like Sebyuk, she has threatened to like slit the broker's throat mm-hmm. and eventually someone slits her throat mm-hmm. and then so you know like and then Ali as well he steals and then he dies by getting stolen from and then Duxu jumping from the bridge to escape getting pushed off a bridge so that was really interesting I had not seen that or like thought about that but that's like a really nice easter egg so thanks for bringing that to my attention in your review well to be honest I didn't see that either because I mean I watched the show so so quickly that my brain was like trying to catch up <laughs> dream <laughs> <laughs> but um because squid games everywhere uh i just kind of came across i think it was a youtuber so, so a youtuber whose whose uh viewers actually pieced this together and i just can't remember which video it was because my entire youtube page is full of squid game recommendations because <laughs> of the algorithm you know yeah, now it's just, so I can't just, escape I don't it anymore. know which uh, video it was, but it was actually other fans of the show that had pieced this together. And I was like, kind of mind blown when I learned of it. I was like, whoa, that must have been planned from the start, you know? It has to be, yeah. yeah. And that made me wonder, you know, like what the message was. Why did, why did he write it that way such that each of them died in a way that was related to their past. Mm. And the only conclusion that I could come up with is that there's some kind of message in there that there's no easy fix. Like just because you go into this big stakes uh, death game thing doesn't mean that you can escape your fate. And then there's also this karmic, what's the word? You know, this karmic quality to it. Karmic retribution, maybe? Yeah, it's kind of like, but I don't know if that's what the show is trying to say, you know, like because it doesn't really seem to fit with the overall themes of the show, because the overall themes are more like social commentary and, you know, whether or not you can escape the corner that the system has pushed you into. But the comic thing doesn't seem to fit in with that. So that feels kind of... Mm. I wonder if it was just an Easter egg because, yeah, it's interesting because that's like so neatly tied Mm -hmm. up in a way. And then you have all these things that never really get resolved, right? Like Weehajun's character just kind of falls off a cliff and there's no real resolution to like whether we don't ever find out whether his team in the police back home ever got his messages. Um, We never find out really like why his young was there. Like, why did he decide to join the game? No answers. Um, except that, like, he just, I mean, he seems to have bought into it. But, like, we don't really know much about him. That's true. Even though, <laughs> I have to say, like, in the last episode, um, Saya had figured out that he that Young was the front man. Uh-huh. So, good job, Saya. And I had figured out that the old man was suspicious. Ooh, good job, you. <laughs> not to give myself, <laughs> not to give myself props. But, like, it's really interesting that we come back to the old man at the end, Inam. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, I feel like the message of, the show is almost like contradictory in a way because on the one hand, it's kind of saying once you get to, to into this like sort of underclass of almost like debt slavery, there's really no escape for you anymore. Mm-hmm. Like none of these people escape, 
even the people who die and their their families get like some pittance, you know, mm-hmm. that's set to the, I'm sure it's not enough money. Like, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was like nothing. It was more of like, it's just a game to make people stay rather than, you know, it was like it was weird thing of like, they don't even want to give that money to the people who have died, their families, they'd rather keep it to themselves. So it's just like this extreme sort of obsession with like getting the money in that big glass ball. So it's like, on one hand, painting this really desperate picture of these people's lives. But then on the other hand, you have this man lying here who could literally just, he's comes from this class of people who could literally just make these people's lives better, mm. who could make so many people's lives better just by giving them the money or even just by paying their taxes. Because people like him don't even pay taxes. They're like, you know, the Jeff Bezoses of the world who paid zero taxes in the last few years. And then it's like sort of showing the hypocrisy of, them being like, oh, but it's, I'm trying to show you like how human nature is. And I'm trying to like help you. Like it's all. And I'm giving you a fair, a fair chance. Right. I don't know. On one hand, there's this commentary of like how all of that is hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it only really benefits the rich people who just keep getting richer and richer. But then at the same time, you have like a somewhat hopeful message at the end with him being like, no, I'm not going to let this go on. But except like, what is he going to do as one man? I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I did find it a little bit, like, unsatisfying at the end. I think that was deliberate, though, because I think what the show is reflecting is this is the state of the world where the greedy just keep being greedy. The powerful just keep adding to their own um, Mm. power bases. And there are people who want to change the world and there are people who are willing to put their own lives on hold in order to do that. But they are few and they're outnumbered. And this is a situation, excuse me, this is the situation that we're in. And I think we're meant to feel that sense of this is not good enough or this is not satisfying enough. I mean, part of it, of course, is, you know, Netflix always wants to leave the door open for a season two. So we have, you know, Ki-hoon turning back and we don't know what he's going to do and we don't know whether Officer Huang is going to survive. But I mean, aside from that, to your point that it felt unsatisfying, I think that was on purpose, actually. Yeah, well, he claims that he wasn't thinking about season two until recently. Who knows if that's actually true? (laughs) But yeah, I I get your point, I guess. I'm just... It's it's a pretty dark message, I guess. I just, I feel like there is something in there of like the human spirit enduring. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it's just like, but no, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. I, want to, I, I so. think that the show wants to bring that out as well. Because, I mean, Gihun, for much of episode nine, he's like disillusioned. He's like the walking dead. He's not actually living his life. He's just existing, you know, not touching the money and everything. Um, But then at the end, he turns around with a sense of determination. It feels to me that he wants to do something. And so I feel that that's like the glimmer of hope that the show wants to leave us with. That yes, the world Mm. is dark and it's depressing when you think about, you know, like all the and marginalized who suffer and all the people who have all this money who could solve it, but they're not. But the fact that we end on that note where he turns around and is determined to do something, I feel is that light in the darkness that the show wants to leave us with. By once again abandoning his daughter. (laughs) That's the only thing. I was like, just get on the plane. Come back in two weeks. 
and then you can take them down. I'm sorry. That was really beautifully said. And I agree. I just, the thing, the fact that it was like, I'm coming. And she's like, Appa. And then he's like, I'm about to get on the plane. But yes, very, Isn't very that valid. A statement though, that the people who actually want to change the world are often putting their, their personal lives aside as a sacrifice in order mm. to like dedicate themselves towards a bigger cause. You know, so in this sense, I don't see him as abandoning his daughter. It, clearly, he still cares about her and wants to see her. But I feel like in this moment, he realizes that there's something bigger than my life at stake here. And I can't ignore that. Well said. You've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that you are, you know, because I have maybe like a week's a week and a half distance from the end of this show you it's for you it's been a little longer like as time passes like what are your sort of big takeaways from this show and if there's a season two are you going to watch it i would have to give season two a look if only to satisfy my curiosity you know i need to know that officer huang doesn't die <laughs> and i'm coming back for that only reason <laughs> i just want him to be alive <laughs> oh, actually talking about this um I mentioned to you that I kind of took a took a relook at episodes seven, eight, and nine for this chat, and I didn't realize this on my first watch. But in the scene where the pink guards actually find the body of the guard that uh, Officer Huang exchanged clothes with, and he put his ID on him, mm-hmm. frontman is there, and frontman's like holding the ID tag, and he yes sees his brother's face there and at this point when I'm when I was first watching it I of course I didn't know that that was his brother but now on hindsight I realized that oh this was the point where he knew that his brother was involved mm. like the fact that there's this intruder that frontman has noticed in his private space it's, it's probably at this point that he already knows that the person who's sneaking around is his brother and then that adds like this whole other layer of meaning to it because clearly he does care about his brother and I think that's why he shoots him in the shoulder and not the head and he actually takes off his mask which is you know he didn't have to do that he didn't have to do that right so I mean the fact that he knew that it was his brother and he had to carry on facilitating the game I thought that added a layer of poignance to it that I hadn't picked up on on my first watch because why well, <laughs> first watch I've only actually watched it mm, once this, this, this did not count <laughs> as a rewatch um, but just revisiting the episode I was like wow did not realize that yeah somebody was saying they were rewatching it after having seen the whole thing and like it was a holy like a totally different experience because now they know the old man orchestrated the whole thing uh, yes. so from the beginning they're like the old man he's not as innocent as he seems which yeah i can see that although i'm not willing to rewatch the whole thing cuz there's like 100 dramas to watch yeah i think i will also watch a season 2 or at least check it out because it's interesting where we've we're left with this you know the old man who started the game has passed away it's pretty clear that they play this game in a different country every time or something because there's one scene where the VIPs are like, it's in Korea this time, it's really good or whatever. Oh, there's some kind of reference to I it being in Korea that. this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it's like a yearly thing where like it's, you know, takes place in different countries during different seasons. Plus or in the storage room, they had all those files with different years labeled. So maybe it's like in January we do this country and in February we do this. So like... 
it could become global. I mean, maybe the front man is going to take over now that the old guy is dead. I mean, they could go in a lot of interesting they directions. Could, they could. It's hard for a second season to ever live up to a hype this big. That's true. It actually might be wiser not to do a season two. I mean, although we want to know that Officer Huang lived, I feel that the ending can stand on its own. I mean, there are some cliffhanger endings when you're like, that can't stand on its own. You know, like I need to know what happens next. But for this one, I would actually be quite satisfied to leave it where it is because, I mean, I can imagine that Ki-hoon's not going to really be, you know, like really successful. I mean, he's he's one person um, with, okay, with 4.56 billion won, but, you know, he's one person. And yeah. um, he's up against this very established, very powerful organization you know that's managed to murder hundreds of people, people. with uh, without actually ever getting caught you know so i feel like in the end season two would probably give us a similar message as season one the darkness is great but here is a glimmer of hope human the the human spirit prevails you know and i don't know whether it's worth the time the effort the money to actually make season two to tell us the same thing again. And it's never going to have the same impact, right? Of that first time mm-hmm. you see that red light, green light game and you realize what's going on. Like that impact of seeing how the game is set up and how they actually go home and choose to come back. Like all that stuff was brilliant. I really think that this drama peaked at episode six. Mm. I didn't find episode seven to be good at all. Uh, partly because of the cringy acting of the VIPs. Partly because I just thought it was... Very slow. Like, episode seven I found to be quite slow. (laughs) Talking about the VIPs, um, okay, I found them super cringy as well, but I recently came across an article on The Guardian which kind of gives them an opportunity to share from their perspective, like, what are some of the struggles that they had. Okay, I thought that there were some important points raised. Like, one, the script that's clearly not written by a native speaker but I think that was pretty and obvious. And then yeah. the context. So as actors, they are just, you know, given their lines. So they have no idea like what's actually going on and therefore how to pitch themselves necessarily. But I thought one of the most interesting things is that they mentioned that the person editing is also not a native speaker. As in the person who would edit for the final take is not a native speaker and therefore doesn't have the um, oh, I see. So they wouldn't be able to tell which is the best yeah, take. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to tell, like, mm. in terms of an English speaker, like, which is the best take, which is most natural, which makes the most sense, you know. They might actually take mm. the worst take and say this flows better from a technical sp- perspective. Interesting. And then go with that. And I thought, okay, that's a valid point, you know, that they have no control over that. And everyone's entitled to a bad take, Right. And it, it could just be the most unfortunate thing that your worst take got picked for the final cut. I still think they're not great actors, to be honest. It was, but yeah, it was still rough. Yeah, it was still but, rough. Uh, okay. But I think this is interesting context <laughs> that helps me to uh, have a little bit more sympathy for the actors who act as the VIPs. I think also just like there are plenty of K-dramas that have not very good actors playing like Americans or Europeans or like other foreigners. And 
they just never reach this level of global notoriety because not that many people watch them. And so it's just not, and we're just like, okay, it's K-drama, white people. It's all right. We'll move on. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, how we're used works. to this. <laughs> exactly. But suddenly they're on this global stage getting kind of attention that they didn't expect. So, you know, I, I feel for them. It's probably not, not a good experience. I know. I mean, can you imagine the whole world making fun of you? That, that can't be fun. It's tough. It is. Yeah. I mean, if, if they do come out with season two, I hope they bring back Officer Huang and I hope they bring back Gong Yu. Of course they have to bring back Gong Yu. <laughs> we always want Gong Yu, even when he's playing an evil, like MLM type. No, what, what, what would he even be? Like an evil salesman for like a death game. He's still cute. <laughs> Maybe they could get him back in a bigger role. Make him front man or something. Oh, but then they would have to cover his face, right? Okay. Hmm. Can't cover his no. face. That, that would be good. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me for this K-Fan Girl. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. It's my first time on a yak that's not about myself. So this was <laughs> this was refreshing. Yeah, and not the last, hopefully. Would love to have you back. Oh, I'd love to come back. Thank you. So where can people find you on the internet, K-Fan Girl? I write at thefangirlverdict.com. On Facebook, you can search for The Fangle Verdict. I am at KFangirl with a U on Twitter. And I'm also at The Fangle Verdict on Instagram. And go follow her and find her on all those places if you don't already. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Dramas Overflow. You can find us on Instagram at Dramas Overflowers underscore. Our blog is dramasoverflowers.net. And if you'd like to uh, let us know what you thought about Squid Game or any other thing, you can reach us at dramasoverflowers at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook. Um, And if you're interested in joining the newsletter, click on the link in the show notes. Dramas Over Flowers is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And that's it. Thank you, K-Fangirl. Thank you, Anissa. Bye. Bye.